to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership keyboardist, singer, composer, and producer Preston Glass. Starting out as a staff writer for Philly soul legend Tom Bell, by the early 1980s, he was working with some of the biggest names in R&B and continued to do so well into the 21st century. Those artists include his mentor, Narada Michael Walden, Aretha Franklin, Phyllis Hyman, Whitney Houston, Stacey Ladisaw, Tina Marie, Larry Graham, Sheena Easton, Benny King, Kenny G, George Benson, Earth, Wind and Fire, especially Maurice White, Lionel Richie, Jermaine Stewart, The Dells, Stylistics, Dolphonics, Lenny Williams, Frida Payne, Nellie Cole, Johnny Mathis, Starpoint, Evelyn Champagne King, and many others. In all, he's been associated with more than 30 top 10 R&B hits and five top 10 pop hits. Since 2006, Glass, whose brother Alan is also an accomplished musician, has released a half dozen albums under his own name. Wow, Preston, that's impressive. Thank you for joining the show. Well, thanks for having me. Boy, that list makes me feel tired and old. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking behind you, it looks like you have, uh, you know, souvenirs from a lot of that work. So, yeah, well, the, you know, I rarely look behind me, and, and I guess that's why I'm still doing it today. Well, thank you for being on the show. Much appreciated. Where are you coming to us from today? 
in the uh, sunny Los Angeles, I know the rest of the country is kind of uh, su suffering here, but we're in the cold 60 degrees here. <laughs> yeah, I know how that is. I uh, born and raised there, um, moved to the East Coast in 2006, so I, uh, I miss uh, that weather sometimes, believe me. I'll take a picture of the sun. Sun for you. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of looks a little like the sun over your head, so I'll pretend that's <laughs> the go. Southern there, California sun right there. For that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and they say when you're cool, the sun's always shining, so there you go. Very good. Um, now, where are you from originally, Preston? I never know how to really answer that. My parents are both from the South, uh, New Orleans, and my dad from Savannah, Georgia. But uh, he, being a military man, uh, they lived all over, so I kind of grew up all over. Uh, we kind of settled in, in California, different spots. Uh, but my uh, youth was spent all over the country, and uh, as a result, I was exposed to all different kind of uh, radio stations and cultures. And I think that's the reason why my musical taste is so diverse. And what first drew you to music and how and when did you decide that you were going to pursue that for for your life well I started playing guitar when I was five and um, started unbeknownst to me started composing songs and uh, one of my older brothers actually Alan he said man what are you doing uh, I've never heard this song before you know you're writing songs I said really <laughs> so um, I would get uh, different records back in the day, 45s, you know. And my dad would buy them, and uh, I would look on the label, and I would see the artist name, but then I would see, actually, I inquired, who's that in parentheses? Because I would see a lot of the same names. Like if I bought a lot of Motown, I would see Holland, Dozier, Holland, or, if I, or Smokey Robinson. And I, my dad would say, well, that's the songwriter person that wrote the song and then I became instantly uh, enthralled with wow I think I want to be a songwriter because uh, they're on all these records and then of course as I grew older I uh, started to understand just what that was songwriting and uh, composing and lyric writing and I uh, started writing songs uh, a, a song a day for about uh, five years <laughs> Wow. And then, uh, as I became a teenager, I started sending my music out, and uh, that's when I caught the attention of uh, Tom Bell. And, uh, so you you sent it to his attention, or, or it got passed along to him, or? Well, I actually, I sent it to Philly International Records, which uh, the A and R guy at the time was Phil Terry, who was one of the intruders, believe it or not. And um, he let me know that Tom Bell was doing a workshop in Philadelphia one particular weekend when I was 16. And he said, if there's a way you can get out here, I'll, I'll introduce you to Tom. And, of course, I was in California, Philadelphia, being 3,000 miles away. Not, us not being, you know, well off. We're just an uh, average uh, middle-class middle family. So uh, I did a, a high school... Uh, performance where my choir director uh, announced that the proceeds from the performance would half would go to the uh, music department the other half would go to my trip to Philadelphia 
so we raised money for me to fly out there. I met Tom, and uh, from that, I I was constantly I was a fan of Tom, by the way, so I knew exactly who he was. Loved all you know. I would see his records, uh, his name on the records. I always thought it was Tom Bell. <laughs> what what year was it when you went out there, Preston? Uh, seventy six. 1976. Actually, no, I'm sorry, 77. And uh, he had just finished doing some work with Elton John, and uh, he had did it in Seattle. So I didn't know anything about the Seattle uh, connection where Tom moved from Philly to uh, the West Coast. So all the time I was out there, I, I was trying to convince him, you know, I think I'm going to move to Philly, and uh, I'd like to uh, just you know, have you mentored me? And he said, man, you got to finish high school. You got you to finish high school. I said, oh, I'm going to finish high school. I'll just finish it out here in Philly. And then he whispered in my ear, he said, man, I'm not supposed to really tell anybody this, but I'm moving out to your side of the country. He said, so stay where you are. I said, oh. Now, when he said your side, I thought L.A. I thought he'd be coming out this way, but... Uh, he moved out to Seattle, and that's when he set up shop there. And as soon as I finished high school, I looked him up, and to his promise, uh, he did mentor me. He signed me and my brother Alan to a staff writer position there at Bellboy Music, which is part of the Mighty Three uh, publishing company. And what was uh, like the first project that you were, you know, associated with there? Um, yeah, staff writers, we were assigned whatever project Tom was working on at the time. We uh, we were apprised of it, and then we went to work. We all had our writing rooms, and some of the different writers that were there at the time was uh, Bell and James, you know, Leroy Bell and uh, Casey James, and then there was uh, George and Shannon, who have now written number one hits with George Merrill and Shannon Rukam. There, it was a bunch of talented writers. So the first project was Dee Dee Bridgewater, and uh, we, we had a song on that album. And then the next project Tom did was uh, Denise Williams. We were able to write one with uh, Denise herself and Tom. And uh, right after that was The Temptations, and we had two songs on that album. So every seemed like we were striking... Uh, Right there on the target, every t every project Tom was doing, we at least had a song. So that was a good uh, learning experience for us, kind of watching how he would uh, take songs and arrange them. We, we would go in the studio and just watch. It was great. Wow, what an education. And you were doing uh, music and lyrics, or just one or the other, or which? Uh, depending on the song, you know. I learned early on how to do both, so... Uh, for instance, on the Denise Williams song, it was all music for me. Me and Tom did the music, and uh, Denise and Alan did the lyrics. On uh, the Temptation stuff, it was uh, a little of both. I wrote a lot of the lyrics on that. So, what was it like uh, growing up with Alan? Is he, which, which one is older, and uh, you know, sort of uh, who's better at what? <laughs> All right. Well, Alan is older than me. He's uh, seven years older than me, but uh, I don't know why. A lot of people always would think that he was my younger brother. I think because 
maybe our personalities. I'm more laid back, and he was more the outgoing party guy. <laughs> and um, Alan's uh, one of his unique talents that I I don't really possess is uh, he's a phenomenal guitar player. I play a little guitar, but I'm not a I wouldn't call myself a guitar player player. So he does that, but he has a lot of the skill set that I have as far as production and. Uh, he does a lot of that over in Europe. He's been in Europe for 30 years. So, uh, yeah. And we, we still write together. We got a song that we just wrote that is going to be on the brand new Spinners album that I just produced that's coming out in uh, June. Wow, exciting. Very cool. Do you remember the first song that you were associated with that you maybe heard on the radio or something like that? Yeah, uh, it was, uh, I'll never forget it actually, it was Stacy Lattisaw and Johnny Gill, Perfect Combination. And uh, I would hear that quite regularly regularly on a uh, R&B station in the Bay Area. That was when we uh, lived up in the Bay working with Narda Michael Walden. And uh, first time I heard it, I was like, it was like an out-of-body experience, you know. Like, wow, I like that song. Who wrote that? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, how, how did you uh, connect with Narada Michael Walden? And, and was there anything sort of between Tom Bell and him, or was it directly to that? Well, there was really no lull space between Tom and Narda. By the way, his name is pronounced Narada Michael Walden. A lot of people think it's Narada, but uh, it's Narada. Narada. And yes, like Florida, Florida Narada. But he's. Uh, what happened was I was at Tom's, uh, and I would say that uh, between myself and my brother Alan, we would write like ten songs a week. You know, we were we had our own writing room. We 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 were so excited, and of course Tom. He had a workload, but he wasn't doing a whole lot of projects. So, a uh, song here, song there, you know, we're talking about maybe three songs a year. So, you know, there were dozens of songs just sitting there that we thought were, some of them were pretty good. So, I said to myself, you know what, even though I'm signed to Bellboy Music, I want to send some of our songs out to some other of our favorite producers. So I remember sending uh, this one particular batch of songs to Quincy Jones. I sent one to uh, Narda Michael Walden. And uh, I got an immediate response from Narda saying uh, he was a big fan of Tom Bell. And I guess he saw the return sticker on there saying Bellboy Music, so he opened it right away. And uh, there was a song on there called Spotlight that he gravitated to and he ended up doing that song for uh, the second Stacy Lattisaw album so uh, based on him liking that song he put the word out he said uh, man if you got any more songs or if you interested in collaborating let me know and it just so happened that about a year or so later Tom was really slowing down kind of on purpose uh, he, for a personal reason, so because he he wasn't doing as many projects, we didn't really have much to write for. So uh, I went down to San Francisco, and uh, next thing you know, I moved down there, 
Narda loved collaborating with me and kind of wanted me around. I guess he liked my energy or something. So uh, next thing you know, I became kind of like an A&R guy for his uh, production company. Um, and I would do, besides writing songs with him and for projects he had, much like the Tom Bell situation, um, I would also keep track of songs that he wrote that uh, he might have forgot about. And one of those songs was a song that he and Jeffrey Cohen wrote called Freeway of Love. He had wrote that for himself. And uh, when he didn't put it on his album, he just put it on the shelf. But I always thought it was a cool little song. Remind me of a Motown kind of thing. So when it came time to do Aretha, I reminded him, I said, remember that song, Freeway of Love? He barely remembered it, but he said, uh, yeah, I think so. I said, man, listen to it. I think that'd be a great song for Aretha Franklin. At first, he was like, I don't know about that. I said, just let the rhythm guy, the, uh, your rhythm uh, musicians practice the song and see what you think. And then once they played on it, he, he loved it. And the kicker was, of course, Clive Davis heard the demo, and he went bananas. <laughs> wow. So when you sent these songs to uh, Narada, were, were they just uh, written out, or were there demos, or what form were they? You mean the original stuff I sent to them? Yeah. Uh, they, were, uh, they were demos. They were much, they were like records, really. <laughs> I guess because uh, I'd always studied arrangement, and I have uh, Tom Bell to thank for uh, helping to hone my arrangement skills and stuff because I would watch them closely. So when I came time to uh, demoing my songs and my brother's songs, we would always want to put that overdub and that overdub, and us not being really singers, we would always get, if it was a male artist, we would get the local great male vocalist, or uh, Alan's girlfriend was a girl named Barbara Wood, and she was singing all the female demos, and that's, you know, she had a great voice, so that's how we got those D.D. Uh, Bridgewater cuts with uh, with Tom and Denise Williams cut to see. I sent those demos to Nard and Mike Walden, so they were already almost record-like uh, in their uh, makeup. In fact, a lot of the little overdubs he, he ended up doing on there. So I guess cut to years later, that's how I was able to get some production gigs because as I started having a lot of cuts with Narda and he started getting offers to do certain projects, he would uh, throw them my way if he didn't want to do them or if he didn't have the time. And that's how the Kenny G album uh, happened. So when, when you went to... Uh transition to uh, Narada and that part of your career, uh, did did you and Alan kind of go your own ways at that point? or? Yeah, Alan was pursuing more of the performing end. Like I said, he's a great guitar player. He had a couple of bands, and uh, he still would write, but uh, it wasn't until I guess I was having a, a measure of success with the songs for Narada that uh, and my publishing was getting ready to be available again. Uh, I was still signed to Tom Bell uh, the whole time I was working with uh, uh, Narda. So uh, 
I was uh, getting a lot of offers from Almo Irving and uh, MCA Music and different companies, Famous Music. And so uh, Alan said, man, I want to join you in, in writing. Let's start our own company. So that's what we did when our publishing uh, our contract was up with Tom Bell. Uh, we were offered uh, to have our own company under one of those other majors. So Alan and I started uh, Glasshouse Music, and uh, we signed with Almo Irving, which was uh, Lance Freed and Brent Andrews and them. And uh, that was a good relationship. Sonerida seems like, you know, such a friendly, uh, kind of easygoing guy. How would you describe, what was the first impression you got from him? And then how did you come to, you know, become, I, I assume, friends? And, 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 you know, how can you describe him both as a person and as a talent? Oh, there's a lot of questions in there. Let me, let me take the first part. You said he sounds... Like a friendly, easygoing person. Yes, he's very, he's friendly, easygoing. I don't know. <laughs> he's very, he, you know. I, I know you don't know me very well, but I'm I'm kind of laid back and easy, and uh, he's very intense, very spontaneous, very. Sometimes he's jumping uh, off the walls. So I think that's one of the reasons why we work together well, because I'm like the yin, and he's the yang, and. Um, our relationship, yeah, we became friends. We're still friends uh, over 40 years. But, uh, yeah, he, he, of course, being a phenomenal drummer, uh, I think the energy comes from that, you know, his energy. And um, we're still working on tunes together. Uh, there's a song, I probably, I don't know if he wants me to say this, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. You'll, you're the first to know about it. But the Temptations, this year is their 60th year in the business, uh, recording and everything. So they're going to make a big uh, splash about that. Uh, and I think during Black uh, Music Month in June, they're going to come out with uh, a song that Nard and I wrote along with Otis Williams uh, called When We Were Kings. And it's going to feature a lyric that really talks about their life as the Temptations, all the members, maybe not all the members, but uh, the principal initial members, along with Dennis Edwards as well. And wow. they're mentioned in the lyric, yeah. So it's a special song, and uh, I was commissioned right along uh, with Nard by Otis to write this. Nice. Well, definitely keep an ear out for that. Um what what would you say though is his uh, talent as a producer? Oh, he's he's got a lot of uh, great talents. Um, one of the things that it, you really uh, I've come to find out is very important. It's not even related to music. It's related to how he deals with the individual. For instance, if he's producing Whitney Houston or. He's very keen at getting them to be comfortable, getting them to get the right performance. Um, he's uh, a genius at that. And, uh, of course, you know, there are so many great musicians in this industry. There are a lot of great producers, but there's not a lot of people that know how to make an artist feel comfortable. 
and uh, he's that's one of his talents. So going back to the uh, Freeway of Love, you know, when when that took off and Aretha came out with that record and it completely like you know restarted her career and brought her to a whole new audience and you know those viewers who maybe you know weren't around at the time when that came out in the mid '80s, it was quite a sensation. The videos, everything, it was a whole um, phenomenon with Aretha back in the uh, limelight. Um, how did that change your life and? Um, you know, did you get to spend much time or any time with Aretha? Very interesting. Um, well, the first part of the question, how did it change my life? Well, it changed it completely because it really made uh, me have uh, a legitimate career in songwriting and uh, mus musicianship and, and all of that. And um, as far as meeting her, well... There are six songs that she did of mine, uh, one that she co-wrote, which was Who's Zoom and Who, and I had never met her because what happened was Narda would do her vocals in Detroit because she didn't fly. At that time, she didn't fly. She did, so the tracks were done where we were, and Aretha uh, would do them in uh, Detroit. Now, I had been introduced to her on the phone and talked to her on the phone, but never met her until uh, the year 2008. And I'll never forget I was introduced to her, and the person that introduced me, she it was at an award show, said, uh, Aretha, you might not know this gentleman by, by face, but you probably know him by name. Uh, this is Preston Glass, and uh, before the guy could say any more, she said, I know that name. That name is sitting right next to me on Who's Zoom and Who. I always wonder who is that guy. <laughs> That's what she said. It was she was she was cool though. Wow, it's like tw more than twenty years after the record. Right. Yeah. She's something else. She's uh, she was a personality uh, that was on fire because uh, one of the times I had met her on the phone was uh, when Clive Davis asked Narda to produce Aretha. So Narda had already had a few conversations with her. And this particular time, he said, I'm going to call her because after talking to her a few times, I see she's got such a colorful speech and colorful personality. I want to write down some of the stuff she says, but I, I don't want to have to be burdened with that. Can you... Can you write it down for me. Put, I'll put it on speakerphone. I'll introduce you. And then uh, that's how we got introduced. And uh, I was supposed to be the phone transcriber. And everything she said was a song title or something. You know, she would, Narda, the conversation was like, uh, hey, Aretha, so how you doing? How you, how, how's Ree? She said, well, I'm not in the best frame of mind. I just got rid of my Ferrari fella. <laughs> I wrote down Ferrari fella. And he said, yeah, I kicked him to the curb. And, uh, I wrote down kicked to the curb. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm free now. And the artist said, so you're free. Your love life is open. Uh, what are you going to do? And she said, well, I might go out to a club. But I did last night, you know. And uh, I, I kind of forget who I am, I forget I'm Re. I'm Re, you know, that's her nickname. 
And uh, she said, I was there and I was checking out this guy. I was, no, she said, I was scoping this guy. And I wrote down scoping. That's a good song title. And she said, he was scoping me. It was like, who's zooming who? You know? <laughs> and I wrote that down. Little did I know that would become the title of her next album. And we gave her co writers credit for coming up with that title because I had never thought of who's zooming who. And I remember when we sent her the demo, because we, we you know, finished the song, we recorded the tracks, we got a demo vocalist, and uh, she said, I like that song. That's very creative. And we said, yeah, you, you co-wrote that. <laughs> she said, I did? <laughs> she didn't even remember saying that. You know? Wow. So she just had this whole, her own language almost. Exactly. Well, you can kind of hear it on, like on Freeway of Love in that middle where she says, let's drop the top, baby, and drive on into, it's better than ever street, you know. Come on, who thinks of that? <laughs> yeah, what a personality. I mean, it's just one of the greatest talents of all time, of course, but also the personality. Yeah, yeah. And and it's uh, something I learned from Narda to get that personality captured on the recording because of course she's a great singer but what makes her different than every other artist out there is her unique personality so you know I read a long list of uh, people that you've uh, worked with over the years and uh, a lot of them happened you know that time from of the 80s um, you, you were you must have never slept during the 80s, right? Once that became a hit, you're just nonstop doing stuff, right? Yeah, it was, uh, well, I'm just now starting to look back. And, and yeah, that's kind of the way I feel. It's like, wow, when did I sleep? Literally, um, when uh, we had just finished doing Whitney's second album, you know, I was playing track, uh, playing and arranging on the tracks, you know, I want to dance with somebody and all that. And at the same time, uh, Clive Davis offered Narda to, to produce Kenny G. At that time, Narda said, I, I don't, you know, I'm not really interested. And I, being from Seattle, not from Seattle, but had lived there with Tom Bell's organization, I was familiar with Kenny playing around town and him being a, a great uh, sax player under Jeff Lorber. And so I inquired with Nard. I said, well, if you don't want to do it, I, I'll do it. <laughs> and I was trying to break into production, you know. I, thus far, I did produce half of uh, the Stacey Lattisaw, Johnny Gill album. I co-produced that with Narda. So I wanted to get out there a little more and do some production. So um, Clive and them went for it. They went for the idea that I could produce it under Narda's uh, executive production so the only way we could get that done in a timely fashion is I would either have to do it at a different studio and come back and, and work with Narda on the Whitney or we could do it all at Narda's but it'd have to be pretty much around the clock so Narda would do uh, Whitney's album from 11 a.m. to about 11 at night and then I would do Kenny G's dual tones album from midnight to eight in the morning or something like that, and uh, that's <laughs> well, that's how hungry I was. No sleep, but uh, 
a lot of music. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, so Kenny G was your was you consider that your first major uh, production project that was really on your shoulders? Yeah, that was actually my first production project. Period. The other t the other project was a co-production with uh, Nard, but this is the first album I ever produced by myself. So when that was successful, what did that do for you? Well, if you have time, I can tell you that when that uh, album came out and the first single came out and the second single came out, it was not successful. It, the, both of those singles came out and sort of flopped, as one might say. The third single was Songbird. And uh, to Kenny's credit, he asked Arista's uh, promotion department, can you please put this out and uh, I will pay for the video myself as well as the promotional dollars myself. Because I think they were already talking about dropping him from the label. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, we know what happened with Songbird. Boom. Exploded. Exploded. And then they re-released the first two singles, top both top ten. And then, of course, that's when the album uh, started selling you know, in the millions. And, and well, that... <laughs> that it did change a lot of things, you know. I don't want to get too detailed, but um, uh, I got a lot of offers to produce people after that, mainly sax players, but a lot of people, including some other Arista artists like Jermaine Jackson, who I produced. But uh, I was willing and wanting to, or thinking it was all going to happen under Narda's production banner because I was part of the team. But I think Narda didn't have designs on, didn't want me to have designs on producing. He, he thought of me as a A&R guy, writer, arranger, kind of organizer. And as far as production, no, you're getting a little bit too out of hand. <laughs> you're getting too much, you're doing too much, man. So we pretty much, I pretty much got fired. And that's when I started uh, Glass House Productions with my brother Alan and uh, we did Earth, Wind, and Fire, and a few other things, and we're in we're really about half a mile from Narda. We got our own office, our own studio, but uh, that went on for a few years, and then then me and Narda got back together. But and that was a little little rough patch there. A little contentious because you're getting onto his turf a little bit. Right. Yeah. But it was one of the best things that ever happened because I. I really, well, I wanted to produce, well, this was it. I, I was not only producing, but uh, I had to do it under my own production company, so a lot of other responsibilities uh, happened, but I think that helped have the freedom of uh, what I wanted to do, who I wanted to do it with, and all that. Yeah, well, that's a proverbial third time was a charm with those singles for Kenny G. Yeah, isn't that something? I mean, when I think back, I mean, uh, Kenny used to, he, he he was so broke, he used to, do you have any money for some reeds? I need some new reeds for myself. <laughs> and it was nothing, you know, to us, he was like, well, he's a, a struggling, uh, you know, sax player. Sure, man, whatever. And then next thing you know, boom. Yeah, from my vantage point, it was really interesting to see that trajectory because I was a fan of the Jeff Lorber Fusion in the 70s, 
you know, and then I was like, wait, that's this, that's Kenny Gore. Like that's the same guy that was, you know, yeah. wow. Um, yeah, that, that, as far as, uh, from what I hear, the relationship with Kenny and, and Jeff kind of went interesting too, because of that as well. I had, uh, I don't know if you know Joe Plass, but he was yeah. on the show and yeah, he was playing with a lot of Kenny G at that time. We played on the album that I produced. Yeah. Yeah. On one, one, one song we did completely live and Joe was on there. So, um, let me ask you about a couple of these other, uh, folks you worked with right around that time, a little bit before Kenny G, but, um, you did uh, some work with Tina Marie. Is that right? Yeah, I actually played guitar on, uh, I guess it's one of her greatest hits, uh, Out on a Limb, which she wrote. And even though she gets the credit on the label for producing, Narda pretty much produced that, that track. Uh, and then if you look on the label, you'll see all the Narda's musicians on that song. But that's... That's how I got to work with her, and she she was real cool. She's real real down to earth, and uh, she sang like she was on when she was singing on the mic. She sang like she was on stage. You know, she was twirling, and <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah, a tremendous talent she was. I think underrated by a lot of people because yeah. one of my favorite singers. But plus, she was just all around musical. Um, great loss. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, you had some stuff that you've done with Larry Graham? Yes. Um, <clears throat> Larry is, a lot of people don't know, Larry's my brother-in-law. Um, Narda was asked by Warner Brothers to produce some songs for an album by Larry, and that was in 1985. So, uh, Larry's wife, Tina, um, her sister, Gina, came to the studio. We got married two weeks later. So, um, and now we've been married for 36 years or so. 37, going on 37. But, uh, yeah, there's my brother-in-law. Uh, that album's fired up that uh, Narda did some cuts on. And since then, since, you know, he's close to the family now. He's done a lot of collaboration. He's had an album that's on my little label now that we put out uh, a year and a half ago called Chillin'. And uh, it's a lot of uh, songs that uh, showcase his vocal chops. So what uh, have you had the uh, good fortune of getting to see uh, Larry fool around with his bass up close at all any time? Well, yes, and uh, as I mentioned uh, well, of course, we've been to a lot of his gigs and uh, had him play on a f quite a few sessions. I mentioned earlier about this song by, by the Temptations. Well, Larry's playing bass on it. We got Larry to play bass on it, so it's going to be a legendary kind of song there. Wow, um, he must be. Uh, yeah, he'll be up to sixty years. Pretty soon in the in the business, Larry. Yeah, he he. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting, you know, how music changes, and uh, we had to do his bass through uh, virtual, you know, through Zoom and all that. And uh, he's learning how to do all that, you know, even though he's, you know, old school and everything. He he knows how to 
hook it up to the engineer out here in California, and he did it. He lives in Minneapolis, you know, right there with Prince. He's still, you know, even though uh, Prince was like a little brother to him, uh, even though he passed away, uh, Larry's daughter and grandkids still live in Minnesota, so he, he can't go nowhere. He's still in that cold weather. Wow. Uh, yeah. Did, did you ever get to meet Prince but through him? Yes. Yes. Very, speaking of down there, really down there, the guy, you know, kind of quiet, but, but not, I think, um, you know, when he was younger, which I didn't know him then, he, he did a lot of his uh, aloof personality kind of things by design. Then as he got older, he, I think he just mellowed out and became mature and just a regular guy, you know. But a regular guy, let me put, say that a little differently, a regular guy when it comes to his personality, but his uh, genius was well uh, taken, well noted. I remember uh, my father-in-law, who they got to be good friends because uh, uh, Larry's wife, well, my wife's mother and father and, and Larry's wife, Tina, who is Gina's sister, their mother and father became like a, a mother and father to Prince. And uh, so uh, my, my father-in-law would always play pool with him, and he would always lose, you know, because Prince would just run the table. <laughs> but, you know, that that was a thing between them. Okay, this time I'm going to win, you know, and he'd never win. He was, he was good at everything, basketball, pool, of course, musicianship, but, uh, yeah. Interesting guy. That's what I hear. Just competitive, no matter what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I saw um, Larry Graham play at the House of Blues in like 1995, maybe. Right. I and think I got I was to. Rare. Oh yeah, that was an awesome show. I was so glad to see them back again. Um, but I went backstage, you know, and and Larry and and Tina were so nice and. Um, I told him at the time, I said, um, have you met Prince? And he said, no. And so, because, you know, he's like doing covers of like so many of your songs. He's like, you know, don't I believe in you? And just all these tracks. And I'm like, you should like meet him and hook up. Yeah, and then fun. a year later, they became like, you know, best friends forever. Yeah, I don't think Larry really was, I won't say he wasn't familiar with him, but I don't think he really knew much about Prince's music. Because I had the same experience, you know, we would, me and my brother-in-law, we would get together and just listen to, hey, what's the latest album you got? What do you got? What do you got? And I, would, I remember playing them the uh, Emancipation album. And I said, this guy's all over you, man, the bass licks and all that. And uh, Larry said, hmm, I have to check him out. <laughs> you know, almost like like Prince is some new artist. And then, then of course, he became, you know, part of his tour and they became like brothers. And who would who would have known, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was glad they finally connected because they certainly were, you know, musically and spiritually connected before that. Even I think. Yeah. Um. So, what was your exposure to to Whitney Houston like, and and what was she like? Uh, she, you know, what's interesting. There's the uh, persona that everybody has had and has and then there's the Whitney that was around the studio and singing and whatever 
uh, of course, let's talk about musically, just just phenomenal. And, and she knew she was phenomenal. She was humble, but she loved her voice. You know, she'd be like, man, I sound good. No, I listen to that. <laughs> but then that's how she talked, too, you know. Uh, maybe the image of, you know, Miss uh, Christine... Uh, church going, uh, never do wrong lady was what the media saw. But um, I always call her, uh, she was an around the way girl. In other words, she was just a woman down the street or a woman from the hood, really, because she's from the hood originally. And and that's how she really was in the studio. You know, she laughed a lot, she played, you know, played jokes and all that kind of stuff. What about um, George Benson? Yeah, he's he's definitely a genius and a perfectionist. By the way, George is one of our dear friends too. Um, yeah, he's a perfectionist with his guitar and with his voice and with his musicianship, uh, whatever uh, his arrangements on his songs. You know. Uh, a producer that doesn't have a backbone would have a hard time <laughs> working with him because he would just chew him up and spit him out. But I, I kind of found out his weakness. <laughs> and uh, Because basically a lot of these guys, uh, musicians, are uh, perfectionists, but sometimes there's a reason why they're not producers or there's a reason why they're not... Um, their role is what they do. They're a guitar player, they're a singer. And and I think if he were to be a producer, it would be to his default that he um, is a perfectionist. So I, I started to realize that because I started to realize some of the techni technical things he was picking on in the studio really didn't matter. So uh, once I started to figure that out, of course you can't tell him that. <laughs> Part of you know producer jobs being a psychologist, so we figured out well, take him to dinner, take a break. You know if he's really harping on, oh this mix isn't right, there's something not right, I don't like it. Of course the mix is sounding fantastic, so I would tell my engineer, okay, don't touch nothing, but please make it look like you did something, and we're gonna go to dinner, and uh, we'll come back and see what George thinks then. So George, we made sure he had couple of bottles of Chardonnay <laughs> and we come back and, and I had asked the engineer, okay, play what you got. And uh, George heard it and said, that's phenomenal. We love that. What'd you put on there? And uh, Maureen, uh, we had a, a, a female engineer at the time, Maureen Troni, and she just said, oh, I put some spaghetti sauce and, you know, <laughs> and George was happy. So just and we did that every day on every mix. Take a dinner break, a couple bottles of wine, come back. He loved it after that. And while the city sleeps, was that the first time you worked with him? Yes, yes. And I really enjoyed uh, seeing him and Narda go back and forth with their musicianship. Narda being a great drummer, George being a consummate guitar player. And they both are very uh, when they when they uh, record or when they work in the studio, they're teachers, you know. So 
George was teaching and Nard was teaching and I was just soaking it all in. Yeah. Wow. I had the uh, good fortune to be at the uh, Weekend in L.A. show at the Roxy back in wow. the 70s, and, and that was a thrill. Um, uh, I've always wanted to, to meet George, and I've been trying to get him on the show, but um, not yet. But uh, I, I hope before it's all said and done, that happens somehow. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.